Hi, I'm Joanne Woodson, a solo practitioner specializing in commercial leasing law. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I know that there's a lot to wrap your head around when it comes to commercial leasing. The goal of my podcast, the Commercial Leasing Diva Podcast, is to make your lives as commercial leasing professionals easier and more fun. In the podcast, I speak to other commercial leasing professionals who share their expertise so that we can all improve our commercial leasing game and better serve our clients. Today's guest is Carrie Bob. Carrie is CEO of Carrie Bob and Company. She is a specialist in retail leasing, both in San Diego and now in Nashville after a recent relocation there. As we'll hear from the conversation, Carrie also has a specialty in social media and commercial leasing. And I know you're gonna learn a lot from listening to us, uh, enjoy. So where are you these days? I'm in Nashville. I don't know if you're. I know. I'm seeing on Instagram. I'm like, did that lady move over to Nashville, Tennessee? I did. I did. That's exciting. It's been really great. We're so happy here. It's definitely different, and we're kind of like, what did we just do? But in all the best ways. We really, really love it. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm currently in Reno, but I spent about six months this year in Italy, which was very nice. Oh my gosh. So how did that happen? Um, I just was like, you know, fully remote. I can be fully remote anywhere. So why don't I just go plump down somewhere? And that's amazing. Uh, yeah. So it was really nice. It was really oh, nice. That's amazing. Good for you. Yeah. 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 So now I'm back in Reno and uh, of course I'm licensed in Reno in Nevada and California. So. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are you still busy so, as ever? It's really busy. Um, yeah. You know, it's, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The market is just crazy pants. So I usually like to start by just having people introduce themselves. Um, so you've got two parts. One is I was interested in just you talking about how you founded your own company mm-hmm. and your initial time in San Diego. And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you made the move to Nashville and maybe differences between Nashville and San Diego. That'd be super interesting. Yeah, for sure. You want me to just jump into it? Just jump in. Okay. So I have been in commercial real estate, specifically retail for over 20 years, 16 of those, and all of those were in San Diego and 16 of them were with CBRE in their San Diego office. And then in 2019, I started Carrie Bob and Co, which is my own retail brokerage company. And then shortly thereafter, I also started a social media company for commercial real estate, which I'm sure we'll talk about because it's so interesting what's happening through social commerce and things like that. So I've been running these two parallel paths, which, which has just been fascinating. And I love both sides of the business and have just done a lot with retail brokerage in Southern California, have learned a lot. I absolutely love it. And then over the summer, actually in the spring, my husband and I kind of looked at each other and went, you know, if we were ever going to move, our kids are at the right age where we could do something different. And we were ready for a change, but we also didn't want to change for the sake of changing. And Nashville was the one spot that I felt like we could go to tomorrow and I'd be fine because I just love the city. I love the people. The energy is good. And so we went and visited in the spring. And then by July, we were 
residents of Tennessee. And it, everything just happened so fast. And we said, all the doors have to open for us to do this because we have a great life in San Diego right. and we've been there forever that we're not going to force this. Things have to right. kind of fall into place and everything, right. everything kind of did. And we absolutely love it. I'm, I'm so glad we're here. And my husband still has his job in San Diego. He works for an in-house retail developer landlord. So he, he commutes maybe quarterly. So we still have our connection there for sure. Right. Right. And so you're also doing the same thing with your company in Nashville in terms of retail brokerage, or are you just doing social media or how is that working? I'm doing both. The plan for right now is to be just running my own brokerage and we still have my the social media company. Most of my team's in San Diego. We still, we have people in Orlando. So just as an aside, I am a huge, huge country music fan. Were you a country music fan before you moved to Nashville? Yes, yes, yes. I love country. I'm wearing boots right now. So Okay, good, good, good. You know. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it strikes me that that's, you know, it's sort of like when you're in retail in LA, there's this whole extra layer in Nashville, I assume, of, you know, like Blake Shelton and all these people who have their own businesses and their own retail outlets and so it's, it's just really kind cool. of fun, you know? It's super fun. And it makes me think that Nashville has got to be something like what Hollywood was like in the 1950s, because you have all these celebrities, not just all country artists, but you have actors and just high profile people. But I think they're drawn to a city like Nashville because it's still a small, feels like a small town. And everybody's a little bit more like under the radar. And I think they like being not so out in front of everything and my guess is right. most of them go to LA do their work and everything right. when they're on and then they like kind of being under the radar here and I just right. love that I love that vibe yeah. yeah 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 okay now I'm going to Nashville real soon and you we'll have, have to lunch. oh for sure come visit you have to I mean it's I was just watching last night something and and the commercial came on for the Grand Ole Opry and I'm like we're go. going when you come yeah I was, I was supposed to go several years ago and then there was that big flood and I had to oh, cancel yeah. my trip so yeah mm, okay all right exciting so I wanted to be sure I have a you know sort of standard list of questions but I think if I recall correctly um and it's clear from your from your Instagram as well that you have a, a specific focus in retail on women-owned businesses and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how that came about and what your experience has been like working with that group. I love this question Very so diverse much. Group. So it started because I had heard the statistic that 80 women make up 85% of all consumer purchases. And so they're influencing so much of the retail economy and industry. And just as I was building my business, the thought process, and women also, 91% of women tend to share information on like deals or even like at the, my kid's school, moms are passing around like how to make things easier and things like that. And I had thought, I wonder if it would apply to female entrepreneurs too, if a landlord focused on female entrepreneurs and merchandising their projects. So my, my main focus in retail commercial real estate is ground up mixed use developments and helping landlords merchandise their, their projects and curate the right type of retail that will add the most value to the, the project. And so I put an emphasis on female entrepreneurs and female owned businesses. And what happened was they all start 
cross promoting each other and helping each other. And so the projects become more successful. So it's not an exclusive, excluding male owned businesses by any means. It's just, you have to make sure that that's somehow a component of a project because women do such a good job of working together to make sure everyone is successful. I, I, I think that one of the interesting things that um, I have seen in my experience where you have a women-centric project, whether it's, you know, I do my leasing law conference or, or retail, is that the standard wisdom is you would never collaborate with your competitors. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to sort of everyone's in a silo and you kind of guard your, you know, your own promotion. And what I have discovered is exactly what you're talking about, which is when women are the focus of whatever the project is, you actually get this intense synergy and collaborative spirit that lifts up everybody. Right. And it's amazing to see. Um and it really turns that conventional wisdom of like, oh, you don't work with your competitors. Absolutely. I've had the opposite experience. And it sounds like you have had that too. Right. It might be a little counterintuitive because you might think you're competing with the shop next door, like you're saying, but it's, it's really not. Everyone needs to work together. And right. I haven't experienced really any negative ramifications to that. You know, you hear some property managers talk about how some people might be kind of difficult, but it's never like, because they're not getting along with. Right. Or I haven't right. heard that. Yeah. Right. So a little jaunt down memory lane, pre-pandemic, if you could take a snapshot of retail in San Diego, what were you seeing? Just so much activity. And I think this is indicative of a lot of, major markets where there was a lot of draw to urban mixed use things like that and walkable cities and markets and shops and opportunities and that's still there that's that's still happening but it's kind of taken a step back and i think retailers and restaurants are looking at the tertiary markets you know uli just came out with their top markets in the US and Nashville was number one for, I think it's the wow. third year in a row, which is really wow. amazing. But you're seeing markets like Tampa and places like that where the focus, and it, I think it's good and bad. It's great for these tertiary markets. They're kind of coming into their own and becoming who they're supposed to be. But at the same time, it also makes me like hold my breath for a minute because we, we need those metro markets and we need those urban markets and it's not like they're bad right. and and so that's I'm a little torn on that because that's what I'm seeing right but yeah so obviously as we all know the pandemic hit retail and restaurant really hard brutally hard um, are there lessons from that period from either the landlord or the tenant side that you have seen which now get incorporated into letters of intent? Or is it like in some other sectors, like I would say office, where we all just pretend that never happened? And letters of intent, if you looked at one today and compared it to 2019, they would look very similar in the office market. But in retail and restaurant, are you seeing any effort to take into account what happened and what might happen again? 
I'm seeing effort. People are trying. I'm not seeing it actually get through. And I wouldn't say that they're just pretending it didn't happen. It's kind of like the food chain, right? You get up to whoever's making the decisions. And a lot of times it's either the insurance companies or the capital, the banks or the people who are financing these properties. It's not just the landlord themselves. And they're just saying, no, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And it depends on how desirable the property is. A lot of times retailers are like, okay, well, we'll plan on negotiating it if it happens again. But I don't think a lot of people really know how to get through it. Are you seeing any good language or anything that? Well, works? I think what's really interesting is that, you know, having lived through the Great Recession in 2008, um, we saw after, you know, 18 months after that started, a very strong tenant market across, I would say, all sectors. And tenants were very aggressively negotiating in letters of intent for Prop 13 protection, cap on cam, uh, you know, obviously very low rents, um, et cetera. What I'm seeing this time, and I, it'd be interesting to study the psychology of this, landlords are being extremely firm in holding the line. Right. And they are very unwilling. And, and this is very, you know, during the height of the pandemic, I thought for sure everything would change. And Same. <laughs> I mean, yeah. could it not? we've just seen something that we never thought we would see before. And we're like, okay, well now you can plan for it because now, you know, maybe it's not COVID, but it could be anything we now know, uh, which we didn't know before. Um, but I'm just seeing landlords be very, very firm. Even I'm not seeing rents decline as fast as I would think that they should be declining given market conditions. Um, retail seems to be very robust in many, many markets. And um, so I'm not seeing landlords make huge concessions. The one market that I work in a lot um, that I'm seeing a little bit of movement in retail is downtown San Francisco. And that is because for historic reasons, um, it, I mean, it's just a ghost town right now. It's heartbreaking. It it's is so heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking to see. And I think, you know, when you were talking about how landlords aren't budging, so much of it has to do with the, the sales. And in some places, people are now back and they're performing well. So that digs them in even more. So you're not going to see it as much. And the places that have been hit the, the hardest, like San Francisco, which is so hard to see, um, there's, there's movement, but there's still not a, a lot what you would think. Right. Right. Yes. It's very... It's very surprising to me. And I think you sort of hit the nail on the head before when you said it's because the institutional landlords, the pension funds, the banks, the insurance companies, um, they have a very narrow parameters for being able to operate and make concessions because of who their ultimate client, so to speak, is. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, we're we're just seeing huge, huge vacancies. And you would think that would lead to a market correction, but so far it's really not in most markets. Then on the other hand, all the brokers I speak to who are in suburbs, at least in Northern California, it's all great. Right. So whether you're in Walnut Creek or you're in Menlo Park, um, it's fantastic um, because people don't wanna commute, but maybe they need to have an office close to home. And so they might have a little 4,000 foot imprint for their office. And of course, then all the people that rely on office workers being there, like 
Pilates and a little restaurant and a little retailer, they're all then attracted to that as well. So the suburban situation seems to be going very well. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in those uh, affluent markets where you have high, high education, high income, where they're trying to live this hybrid life of both working from the office, but also still holding on to what COVID and the pandemic brought us. It's like, oh, I can still like drive my kids to school and be at the office and work this hybrid style. And I think those markets where you have those kind of consumers are really strong, really strong for retail. And I think with all of the density and everything, and even we are kind of seeing like the exodus of California, I still think those pockets, people are doing really good. The vacancy rate is low where the sales are high, like um, in like Northern San Diego County and Orange County, you still have really strong sales and people are still performing. You have a lot of that kind of demographic there too. So even if you have to go to work two days a week in, in downtown LA, you're still spending three more days a week at home. And again, right. you're, you know, going to, if you might go to a gym by your office, now you're going to the gym by your home because it's just so much more convenient in the supermarkets right. and all the other businesses. So it's, it's a very interesting shift we're seeing, um, which maybe was a little bit on the horizon before the pandemic, but now certainly is, is blossoming like crazy. Um, so when you, begin representing a, a tenant client, say, especially if you're dealing with a lot of entrepreneurs or maybe just starting their first business, what are some of the uh, um, basic information that you provide to them about lease economics and how it works for your typical retailer at the letter of intent stage? Right. It's all about a function of sales. And some of my highest performing posts have been educating people on how to back into what a healthy rent to sales ratio is. Yeah, can you talk about that? Because people really don't understand this. And it's a it's kind of a formula, right? Right, it's a super, and that's whenever I've seen startup retail businesses get into trouble. It's they were just way out of whack on right. their, they, they think they'll be able to perform a certain amount. But basically a healthy rent to sales ratio is anywhere from nine to 12%. If you start getting over 12%, the landlord's watching going, okay, your rent is now more than 12% of your sales, which means you're on our watch list. So how you would back into it, I'll do a quick, easy map. And this is how I did it on a few of my posts. And I think it, it helps people. So if you're trying to take a thousand square foot space and let's say the rent is $5 a foot per month or $60 a foot per year. So we'll do 60 times a thousand, that's 60,000 a year. And let's say you're trying to keep your rent at 9% of your sales. So you divide by 9%. So that would be $660,000. So that's your sales target. That's your threshold. You know that if you can do 600,000 in volume out of that store, that that rent is, is sustainable. And that doesn't include triple net charges or anything like that. That's just a a round number, but that's an easy way for people to understand, is this space affordable for me? Because sometimes I think they go, oh, it's, you know, $5,000 a month. I can pay, I can afford $5,000 a month. But then when you really look at it, they're a little in over their skis. So that's the first thing I would say. And then I- And then when you're talking to the tenant, 
How do you help them understand whether that level of sales is achievable, especially if you don't have other stores? So for instance, I know, like say the Ferry Building in um, San mm -hmm. Francisco, uh, which, you know, Amazing. is the super modern contemporary food court, but, you know, extremely high end. Often what the landlords will say to the tenants is I can charge you the rent I'm charging you because what we see typically is $500 in sales a square foot per year, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very high number. Um, how do you help tenants understand? Well, is that target gross sales threshold possible in this location? When you're talking about an iconic property like the Ferry Building or whatever building it is in your market. I would find it hard to believe that a landlord would just take a flyer on somebody who hasn't had sales or a brand or presence that can say, I can hit X amount of numbers. I also wouldn't recommend somebody jump into a project like that because it's really intense and there's a lot to it. And so if you're a true retailer, if you start just a, with a social presence and you're able to say, I got this amount of sales just through social and you can have proof of sales, then I think you could go straight to an iconic building or, or a high rent district. But if you have nothing, I would recommend lowering the bar a little bit because you have, yeah. you're gonna probably have to sign a personal guarantee or something like that. So you're gonna have a lot of at stake that right. you kind of wanna hedge your bets a little bit and make sure that you can actually perform. Right. And in that regard, can you talk a little bit about pop-ups and how that works? in terms of people trying to see, would this be a viable location for us? Yeah, I think they're great for startups or just entrepreneurs putting something together. They're hard to manage from a property management standpoint. But so I, if can I, you just say what a pop-up is for people who may not know? So someone who's doing a month-to-month -month lease and you have no guarantee of being there for an extra 30 days, or it could just be a 90-day pop up, it could be a seasonal thing. And I think those are great. And that's a great option for an entrepreneur. If there's a project that they want to be in, it doesn't work for restaurants or like fast casual, but for like a true retailer or service provider, I think approaching the landlord and just saying, Hey, I really want to test this out. If you see they have a vacancy, it's a great option for them to put some activity in the center and you test out your sales and you mm -hmm. can you can do things where like, if I hit X amount of sales, I want to convert it to a permanent lease, mm -hmm. things like that. You can do, sometimes landlords charge a, a, a flat rate for pop-ups and then they want a cut of whatever the, the sales are, like a percentage mm -hmm. rent. So there's all sorts of things like that. But I think, I think pop-ups are a great starting place for people who are trying to get their proof of sales built. Well, what I've seen is some landlords in their projects will specifically set a lot aside a little spot and mm -hmm. that's designated as pop-up where they just kind of serially try out you know new business ideas and a lot of times at least in San Francisco what I've seen is it sort of comes there's like a pipeline from the farmer's market so someone's right. had a stand at the farmer's market and they've been doing that for a few years they've got a product they've got social and the landlord says okay we'll come over here for a couple months and what I see is that the the um, small business owner then has a chance to see, oh, this is what it's like to be in downtown San Francisco in a primo yeah. shopping center. And, you know, they kind of have some real world experience before they have to sign a five-year lease or a 10-year lease. Right. 
Yeah, no, I, I think they're, I think they're great. And then I think with something like that, can I talk about social for a second and how important Absolutely. it is? Absolutely. Why don't you talk about your social media company, how you founded it and what you're seeing in terms of, of retail and social media kind of merging? Well, we were running it for clients under the brokerage business. And then we just realized it really needed to be its own separate. So when you say running company. it, why don't you describe, I follow you on Instagram, but what is it exactly that you're doing in social? So we are running handles, social media handles for retail properties. We're in, in 2023, we're getting into other verticals and other product lines as well, but we help landlords speak to their core consumer. And this is true for uh, retailers or young entrepreneurs. It's really identifying who your core customer is and who you're speaking to. I think social is a great way to understand who your core consumer is by looking at your insights and analytics. And so that's what we do for our, our clients are truly the commercial real estate owners. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is so, why that's so important is because in 2022, it's estimated that there's going to be $958 billion in retail sales transacted through social media. So this is, this is different than e-commerce. Right. And so almost a trillion dollars will be spent through social media ads. And the social commerce space is growing at three times the rate as e-commerce. Right. Just to put it into perspective, I'm 44 years old. And when I started in retail brokerage, there was no online shopping. (laughs) So (laughs) <laughs> how people spend their money and how they interact with brands and how they actually transact has changed a lot over 20 years. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I see as we go into properties and help landlords and shopping centers with their socials, we run into a lot of mom and pops and they just say, oh, I don't have time to do social or I'm not on it. That is the biggest mistake they can make. You need both. You need both brick and mortar and social and e-commerce and it's worth paying someone to help you get your your legs under you because that's just the way everything's everything's going now the brick and mortar is important because convenience is important and all the part of the experiential retail and we're we're seeing that through through the pandemic people are coming back they're craving like the community that retail provides and so Anyway, I could, I nerd out on that. I could go on about that forever. So my question is, I see how for the retailer tenant, so I'm, I'm Joanne's Donut Shops and I'm in, you know, mega, mega shopping center in downtown, wherever. I can see how my Instagram, Joanne's Donuts, and today we have Jelly Filled, today we have Christmas Seasonal. That helps me. What's your pitch to the landlord about this? How do, how does what I'm doing make a difference to the landlord? Well, it's, it's, it's more the other way around. How can the landlord help their tenant drive more sales? And so the, the biggest thing is TikTok surpassed Google as the number one search engine last year. So people are using Google or uh, TikTok and Instagram as search engines more than Google. And so a landlord, isn't that crazy? Yeah. And, and 62% of social commerce is driven from Gen Z. So the, uh-huh. the youngest generation is driving so much of that traffic. And this is how they are transacting. This is how they're searching things and finding information. And so for 
a landlord or a property to not have a social media handle is the equivalent of not having a website okay. today. So okay. you have to have a, a social handle and the feed has to be meaningful. It has to engage with the consumer or your prospective tenant or whoever your audience is in such a way that it, I would say converts, but it doesn't always have to like become transactional. It might get somebody on property. It might drive sales to one of your tenants, but it matters to the community that you're trying to create. And one of the most interesting pieces that we had done was it was in Pacific City uh, in Huntington Beach, and we were helping a, a the, the landlord there. And they had a new tenant that was going to take 800 square feet in the food hall. And she was a chocolatier. She wasn't open yet. She didn't have her permits. And they just asked us to help her with creating content for when she opens, we could have some professional photos and things like that. So we did. And while we were standing there, I was making, I was shooting video. And she asked me, she's like, what are you doing? And I go, I'm going to create a, a reel for when you, when you open. She's like, oh, I've never made a reel. So I teach her how to make a reel. She posts her very first reel. And she said she had 1700 sales wow. through Instagram before wow. the store was even open. Wow. And so now that landlord is helping her drive sales both digitally and through brick and mortar. And that's really the beauty of like how you can use these tools to also, like retailers are driving almost a trillion dollars in social commerce and like how can brick and mortar landlords like get in the game? It's kind of, that's what Hello Jenny, that's how Hello Jenny started. So the, the landlord's getting in there. He's helping his little tenants get uh, traffic. In the old school, you're thinking, okay, if I'm a landlord, I'm getting percentage rent. And, I, you know, the game, you know, with the beginning of e-commerce was how do I, how do I figure out a way that if the thing was ordered at the store, ordered through the website or delivered to the store, like there were all these machinations, like I want to capture all these gross sales so that I landlord get some upside from this. How does it work with social media? So if I'm a Joanne's Donuts and I'm selling stuff on Instagram, selling my donuts, and maybe I uh, DoorDash them or whatever, um, FedEx them, who knows? Uh, how is the landlord participating in that? That's a really tricky one. And like ever since online shopping came to be a thing, like you mentioned, that's always been a tough nut to crack. I, yeah. I have not seen any, any landlord get participation in social media sales. But right. what I have seen is landlords get participation in marketing funds. And then I think because right now it's still so rare, I think in five years, every major brokerage house is going to be offering social media as a service. And this will right. just be business as usual in five years. Right. But I think especially right now, it's a differentiator and a competitive edge for landlords to say, this is what we offer our tenants. We help you drive traffic, especially for those local mom and pops who might not have a major presence. Sometimes the shopping right. center itself has a larger following, like a community page. Right. And so I think, and that's worth something and you'll see it through either higher rents or some of the marketing funds, things like that. So I guess that's sort of the way it ultimately shakes out is to the extent the tenants are experiencing very high gross sales from whatever platform, brick and mortar or other platforms, that that helps to drive the base rent up that the landlord can charge at that location. Yeah, and I, I don't see that changing as of right now from this perspective, because I think 
everything is all the lines are being blurred from all the different touch points of how you can actually purchase something or have an experience with a brand. Right. And so the landlords who provide the best experiences and provide the best, most amount of touch points will benefit from that through face rent. So in your letters of intent, uh, you know, it used to be percentage rent was extremely common. I don't see it so much anymore. Do you see it a lot, the percentage rent payment requirement? If the tenant sales exceed a certain number, then landlord gets some of that money? Yeah, I, I, I'm still seeing it. Yeah. Is there a particular sector that tends to have to pay percentage rent, restaurants or clothing stores, or just, is it geographic or types of landlords? I don't have anything specific for that. I do think, especially full service, sit down restaurants, they will sometimes raise the break point and they'll raise yeah. the bar. So right. we're seeing that. Uh, but no, I haven't seen specific sectors carving it out or having certain hurdles or anything like that. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, so at the letter of intent stage, um, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see clients make or almost make uh, when it comes to retail letters of intent? Um, when they're first starting out, I think the personal guarantee is a, is a real big one. And there's ways there's ways to do it where they can limit their guarantee, but I get why the landlord's requiring it. You need to know that they've got skin in the game and things like that. One of the biggest, I wouldn't say biggest, but it's language that I like is the rolling guarantee where it's like every, they're responsible for the next two years throughout the term of the lease until the end of the initial term or something like that. So they might be responsible for two years at any point throughout the lease rather than a full seven or 10, five, seven or 10 years. And I think people don't understand how much that would impact them personally if, if things don't work out. And then I think I've seen partnerships not go as planned <laughs> and they didn't work it that out well. And so I think working the partnerships out and things like that. Um, there's so many nuances to a retail lease. I would say exclusives, but I think that I think that used to be the the way it was ten years ago. Is not having an exclusive in the in the project, but I don't think it's that way anymore. As a consumer, um, I get I get it to some extent where you're just trying to protect your your space, but the there are so many new concepts and things that are coming, emerging every day that the lines are just being blurred so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything else about the current state of marketing? I mean, you, uh, of, of letters of intent, you shared social and how big that is. And obviously that's not even the wave of the future. We're riding that wave right now. And obviously you're on the cutting edge of it. If you're crystal balling, what, what do you see uh, in terms of the evolution of retail uh, in the coming years? Such a good question. I, I think you're gonna see more uh, consumer participation in retailer brands and not just like at the influencer level, but people genuinely being like part of 
brand. And I've heard someone describe it kind of like a flow from progressive where you have like key people that are championing these brands and we all have the ability to do it. I think influencers become, that term has become a little cheaper than, because so many people are trying to get into that space than what it actually is, than true people who are educated on a brand are, are really doing that. But I think you're going to continue to have in-store opportunities for things like that. And with AI and all, all of that, there's going to be so many different experiences that people can have with retail brands. I think the tertiary markets are going to continue to explode, um, both in population and in retail potential. I mean, some of the sales that I'm hearing here in Nashville, and I'm still new, I just, I've only been here six months, but the sales volumes that are coming out of here are on par with sales in Southern California with less than half the population. Wow. And it's- Is that demographically because the population is so much more well-to-do or they're just spending more? I, more I, think there's, I think there's less retail and there, there are less opportunities than what you have in some of the more dense markets. I think people are, some of it's tourism I was going to say, yeah. Uh, but some of it's just what's happening with, you know, Amazon moved their second, opened their second headquarters here. And you're seeing a lot of the headquarters moving into some of these markets. Like I know the same thing's happening in Atlanta and in Florida. And so I think you're going to see these tertiary markets start bringing sales volumes that are on par with what they used to be in, in some of these much more dense markets. I mean, Atlanta's super dense, but Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know that we could talk, I'm sure, for more hours. And I, I, I guess I should really think about maybe doing a series on social and really um, oh, yeah. getting more nitty gritty into the mechanics of that. Like, for instance, I'd be so interested to see like your slide deck when you go to a potential landlord and say, this yeah. is what my social media company could do for you. I think people would be super interested in what that pitch looks like. And it's especially interesting to me because landlords, in my experience, a lot of them are very much like lawyers. And that is, they're kind of Luddites. They're kind of conservative. <laughs> they're kind of way no. behind the times. <laughs> and so to, I, I can imagine, you know, going to a law firm and saying, you have to have social. They'd be like, what are you even talking about? I would say the one difference though, is the retail landlords know they need it. They just don't totally understand how it works. Right. And so right, that's right, a right. major differentiator because <laughs> they know they need it. They're just right. not They sure. just need to be educated. Yeah. And so yeah. that's been really fun and getting to show the insights and analytics of how it's moving the needle. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to show you that. I'd also love be happy to speak to how individuals can actually further their career through it too. Cause I think with LinkedIn, there's so much opportunity there and that's the lowest barrier to entry to, to really make a difference or name for yourself on LinkedIn. And there's a lot of opportunity in our industry for sure. That would be a great social. Um, presentation to lawyers would be sort oh, yeah. of self-marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so I will, I will put that in my thinking cap for a future project. Well, again, Carrie, it was so great talking to you and catching up with you. And I'm for sure going to Nashville. I don't know when. <laughs> We're going to go listen but to some It's been music. on my bucket list for a long time and I know I need to get you there. You got to so. do it. 
You got it. So, um, well, it was great talking to you. Happy holidays. And I will be in touch on all to let you know all the socials and how we're promoting this. I, by the way, um, hired an assistant uh, last summer because I was getting ready to um, launch this online course, which is coming out in March. And, you know, I took Amy Porterfield's course, if you know her on oh, yeah, love her. courses. You just moved to and Nashville from San Diego too. I know. I, I've got all these people <laughs> in my head that I follow on Instagram that just moved to Nashville. And I, that's right. Amy's one of them. And I just got so overwhelmed. I like this social stuff is too much. I need a helper. And boy, it has changed my life to have someone oh, who so understands great. the ins and outs of social media. She has a social media schedule for me. She helps me do the reels. Two weeks ago, I had to do my professional photo session. <laughs> She's like, yes, you're going to need to be having pictures of you going like this and this and this and this. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Um, so it's it's been invaluable to me to have a social media specialist on my team. It, That's awesome. changed my whole life. So I really appreciate what you do. Okay, well, happy holidays, and we will be in touch soon. You too. Thank you so much for having me. It was good to see you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I'm Joanne Woodsum. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, rate and review us, like and subscribe. You know the drill. Podcast is produced and edited by Matthew Salanoa. The Commercial Leasing Diva podcast is sponsored in part by Commercial Leasing Law Seminars. If you want to learn more about commercial leasing, and why wouldn't you, please check out my e-courses by visiting my website, www.jleasinglaw.com. And right now we have three courses, two on the dreaded AIR lease form and drafting the addendum, and then a five-week course on commercial leasing basics which takes a deep dive into letters of intent for commercial leases. Hope to see you in one of the classes. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time.